We mentioned last week that Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, is a holiday intentionally welcoming the nations of the earth to Israel. It's part of the whole deal. First of all, it's a pilgrimage festival. It's, it's one of the three times a year that all of the Jewish men had to go up to Jerusalem. But it's a celebration of nations. In Numbers chapter 29, we are reminded that when the sacrifices for Sukkot are made, there are 70 additional sacrifices made. Numbers chapter 29. And those 70 sacrifices are made for the nations on Sukkot. Then in Zechariah chapter 14, we learn that any nation at the end of the age that has attacked Israel, and there are survivors from this war, anyone who doesn't send a representative to Jerusalem to worship the King Yeshua, Zechariah 14, on Sukkot, not just any time of the year, they must send a representative on Sukkot to worship the Lord from all the nations. If they don't do that, they don't get any rain. Again, another nation's tie-in to the Feast of Tabernacles. Then, Revelation chapter 22, in the age to come, or like we call it sometimes the Sukkot age, the last age, the tree of life is revealed again, and its leaves are for the healing of the nations. Notice it doesn't say the, the tree of life has leaves that heal just Israel. The tree of life is for the healing of the nations. And so again, we see all of these tie-ins to the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I want to specifically look at the 70 bull offerings. The Bible is very clear when we speak of this holiday that you bring your regular offerings, you bring something extra, a free will offering, above and beyond. So tonight, if any of you are feeling led by the Spirit or you need to bring a regular tithe, maybe you want to bring offering, we're not passing a plate tonight. There are boxes on the wall. You know how to do it. There's just little boxes on the wall or give online. But look, the Feast of Sukkot breaks down for seven days and then an eighth day sacred assembly and a Sabbath. And each day, we are commanded to bring a certain number of bulls. Now you say, listen, pastor, this is really old stuff. I don't have any bulls. There's no temple. Why are you spending time talking about this? I think you're gonna like it. Hang in there with me for just a minute. The first day of Sukkot, you're supposed to offer 13 additional bulls. The second day of Sukkot, 12. The third day, 11. Fourth day, 10. And we work our way down to the seventh day. And on the seventh day of Sukkot, we offer seven bulls. Ah, but Sukkot is an eight-day festival. So on the eighth day, obviously, if you do the math, you should offer six bulls. But that's not what it says. On the eighth day, there's something different. You don't follow the math. The math changes on day number eight. Because day number one through seven adds up to 70, making sacrifice for the nations. And day eight, you only sacrifice one bull. Now, mathematically, that doesn't follow any kind of pattern. You know when you were in school and you're first learning math and they're teaching you patterns, right? It's like three, two, one, three, two, one, three, two, blank. And your first grader has to figure out that they want the answer one because it's a pattern. Well, here's the pattern of the Bible, starting 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, 7. You would assume six is next, but it's not. Because on the eighth day of Sukkot, you only offer one bull. 
And there's an answer for that. There is a reason for it. The 70 bulls, if you were curious, where did they come from? They come from the table of nations. Listed in Genesis chapter 10, right? After Noah and his family come out of the ark, they resettle, they populate, they multiply, they're fruitful. And then there's a list in Genesis 10 of the table of nations, and there are 70 nations listed, which is the corresponding number to why on Sukkot we offer extra 70 bulls for whom? For the nations. So why on day eight do we only offer one? Because day eight represents the new nation. Day eight always represents something new. Day seven in creation represents completion. Day seven on the weekly Shabbat offers completion of the week. Day eight is always the new thing. Seventy nations existed. Guess who was coming next? Israel. Israel is is the representative of eight. It's the new nation that's gonna be formed. It's the eighth day sacrifice. That's why there's only one bull. It's a unique nation. There's no one else like it. Do you understand? Our God is smart. Our God has so much wisdom and he puts so many puzzle pieces together and it's so fun to live in his house. His word is good, my friends. Did you notice today we have the scrolls out? Anybody love to see the scrolls out? The scrolls today are out and they are rolled to the end of Deuteronomy. Why? Because in just a day or so, we celebrate the end of Sukkot and Simchat Torah, the rejoicing of the Torah. And we say how good is the word of God. It is a rich word for us. There is so much to learn. You will not learn it all in this lifetime, I promise. Why? Because it's a living word. And every time something changes in your life, the word of God is able to connect with you in that new area. It's a living word, not a changing word. Ah, be careful there. Not a changing word. It's a living word. Now, some of you that appreciate or get into numerology, you might also appreciate this one that a lot of the rabbis like to go to. 70 nations for Sukkot, day one through seven. Eighth day, one bull represents the new nation of Israel. It's a unique nation. There's only one sacrifice on that day. So therefore, it becomes the 71st nation. 71, that's a seven and a one. Seven plus one is eight. Oh man, they love this stuff. Right? If you get into that numerology, you might enjoy some of that reading. But God knows what he's doing and he doesn't do things on accident. We got a little phrase here at King of Kings, God does not do random. And in light of that statement, can I take you into the word of God today? Genesis chapter one, verse one is where we're gonna start. Genesis one. Let's keep in mind that God doesn't do random. And we're in a series called More Than You Think. God is doing more than you think he's doing in your life. God is doing more in the festival days than you might think he's doing. And we've proven that over Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Last week we talked about the possible birth of the Messiah and him ushering in the age of peace, how that all works out. And today we're gonna be continuing in Sukkot. What I wanna cover for you today 
are three foundational statements that are found very early in the Word of God. Three foundational statements that we build our life on. We build our theology and our doctrine on some of these things. So they're very important to understand. God doesn't do accidents. God doesn't do random. When God does something in order, you need to pay attention to it. There's a reason he does it in that order. There's a reason Sukkot is the last festival of the year, that seventh festival, the seventh festival representing completion, right? I've been teaching you this over the last couple of weeks. You get it by now. Genesis 1.1, first foundational statement of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So why is that so important? Well, oftentimes we associate the Feast of Trumpets with the creation. That's kind of a traditional thing. A lot of Jewish communities around the world subscribe to that. But it's okay because it's something new, something was birthed, the breath of God birthed creation, we understand. But in this statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there's a point that is larger than just the created process. And the point that's larger than just creation itself is that in the beginning God. That's the foundational statement. The very first words of the Bible establish God alone. That's huge. That sets everything else we think and believe into motion. That God was there and nothing else. And from that perspective, friends, we get to build our belief system. We might even say our knowledge system. It's a little bit more than a belief. It's a knowledge system. That in the beginning there was God. God existed. God alone existed. Nothing was created without him. Therefore, anything he creates is automatically in submission to the creator. That's why it's so important to understand this foundational element. Anything that he creates is subjected to him. And since there was nothing and he was there, therefore everything else was created and is submitted to the creator. All the universe, everything that was created. And Yeshua, of course, is God. Yeshua was there at creation. Yeshua is the creator. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, there was nothing that was made. That's Yeshua, the word of God, the word who spoke creation into being. It's Yeshua himself. And everything is in submission to him. Isaiah 45, verse 23. God says, by myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that cannot be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, before me every tongue will swear. It doesn't matter if you want to submit, you will. It doesn't matter if you want to bow down, you will. It doesn't matter what the nations want to do, they will yield to the Messiah. You know how we know that? Because if they don't, they don't get rain. Right? Right back to Sukkot. That whole idea of submitting to the creator, submitting to the true king, is a very Sukkot-oriented principle. And it's not as if God is doing it to be mean. He's not doing it to be mean. He's not a bully. God is not a bully. 
He's not flexing his muscles and saying, well, if you don't submit to me, if you don't bow down, oh, you're going to have it. No, God is just acknowledging the universal truth that as the creator, all things were created by him and therefore they are submitted to him. It's just a truthful principle. It's, he's not being a bully. He's telling you the truth. And in addition to simply submitting to the creator, being the creator gives him the unique position to judge all things. He's the only one that has that position. He's the only one who is allowed to judge because he's the only one that sits on that throne. Revelation 20, 11 and 12. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done and as was recorded in the books. It goes on in verse 15. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Everyone will submit to God, whether they want to or not, whether they have believed in him or not. Are you saying, Pastor, that they're going to acknowledge him? They're going to know the truth even if they get sent to the lake of fire? Absolutely. There's going to be a lot of people, unfortunately, in the lake of fire who know God's truth because they will have experienced it when they stand in front of the throne. And they finally realize that Lucifer is powerless and God alone is powerful. He alone was the creator and they rejected their own creator. They are going against the universal principled laws of submission. It's not God being a bully. People are just ignoring the truth. Now that is a lot. That is a power-packed few words. In the beginning, there was God. But that little phrase, that foundational phrase, teaches us a whole lot about where we're headed in life and in eternity. And I ask you to embrace that today. That anytime you feel fear, you feel disappointment, you feel like God doesn't love you, you feel distant from God, just remember that in the beginning he was alone and he created you on purpose because he doesn't do accidents. All things are submitted to him, including your problems, including the things that challenge you in your walk with the Lord. They will submit to the creator. Let me move on to the second foundational statement. I told you I was gonna give you three tonight. We're going to continue in Genesis chapter 1. Now, in this chapter, we have the first recorded, the first quoted statement that God makes to mankind. It's the first recorded statement. Now, why am I really underlining recorded statement? Because it's not the first chronological statement. It's not the first statement ever said to mankind. It's the first one recorded. I'm going to teach you the difference in a second at point number three. But stay with me on point number two. Genesis chapter one, verse 27 and 28. Listen to this. The first recorded statement to man. 
So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, so here it comes, right? Here comes, here comes the first recording of what God wants to tell mankind, and he says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So when the Holy Spirit, through Moses, may be written down by Joshua, but it's right here in the book, when God wanted to share what was on his heart for his creation, what was on his heart from the very beginning was be fruitful. Isn't that a a great thing to know about God's heart? That that's what was welling up inside of him. When he was sitting there alone for however long that was, from the beginning of the beginning, what burst out of him was his creative nature to make something and someone to be fruitful. You say, what does God want me to do, be fruitful? No, 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 Pastor Chad, what does he he expect from me? He expects you to be fruitful because he put all of the tools inside of you, your giftings, your talents, your personality, your family, your history, your experiences, all of that has been given to you as tools so that you can go out and be fruitful. Yeah, I'm still not sure what that means. Be fruitful. I don't exactly know how to do it. Just ask. It's hard for a farmer to be fruitful unless he starts to do what? Better start sowing some seeds. That's how you get fruitful. A farmer doesn't get fruitful sitting in the barn. He's out in the field. He's sowing the seed of the gospel. He's telling everybody he knows, everybody he loves, everybody he comes across, hey, that's how you get fruitful. You gotta sow some seed. Some of it falls on good soil. Some of it doesn't fall on good soil. That's not even your problem. According to Yeshua, it's not our problem that it falls on bad soil sometimes. Our job, sow seed, be fruitful. Now that can be in the physical, in the flesh. We can be fruitful like Adam and Eve to reproduce children. And it means in the spirit that we reproduce spiritual children at the same time. That's why we believe so deeply in discipleship. Shameless plug for next semester coming up in October. Join us for the, the discipleship classes. Find one of our spiritual leaders. Find one of our elders or our deacons and, and say, will you disciple me? Will you walk with me? Will you challenge me? Join one of our community groups. If you miss something, go online. Go to the academy classes online. Go to the archives. Be discipled. That's how we make spiritual children. So the first foundational statement is, in the beginning, God. He existed alone. Everything, therefore, submits to him. The second foundational statement is the first recording of God communicating with mankind is be fruitful. That's what was on his heart. That's what he couldn't contain. But I did tell you that even though it's recorded first, it's not actually first chronologically. Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. I'll take you through a little survey here. 
As Genesis 1 continues, we have the creation story unfolding. Six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and he rested. This is the prayer we say at dinner time when we light the candles every Shabbat to designate the Sabbath day from the six days of work. We say that scripture out loud. We learn about God's intentions for the earth as he begins to create. He breathes life into everything. He speaks about the animals. He tells the animals to be fruitful and multiply as well. And then God speaks to someone. This is always a mysterious verse before we jump into chapter 2. Genesis 1.26. That's a, it's a mysterious quotation of God because he's talking to someone. Then God said, Genesis 1.26, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock and the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. There's a lot of debate about what does that mean let us make man. There's a couple of different ways you can go with it. It's not necessarily something you have to argue, but there's some couple of ways you can go with it. First of all, we know the angelic hosts already existed. They existed from some previous creative order. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. Could have been talking to the angels. Or, since God in his own nature is, is unified and plural at the same time, is it too far to think that God is talking to himself? You say, that would be really weird that God would talk to himself, except that Yeshua did it all the time. Right? And Yeshua went out of the wilderness to talk to the Father. And then the Holy Spirit would descend upon Yeshua, and a voice from heaven, the Father would say, and you get, you get conversation going on all the time. Not three gods, one God. Multiple expressions of the same God. So, not sure who he's talking to, but we know that that quote is there, but it's not to humanity. He's not talking to humans because humans weren't created yet. So we gotta skip over that one because he's not talking to humanity. I wanna take you into Genesis chapter two. Now remember, back in Genesis one, when he said be fruitful and multiply, he used the word them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. So it leads me to believe that there was a them. There was an Adam and there was an Eve. That's a them. Plus it could have been really weird if there was just an Adam and God said, be fruitful and multiply. And he's thinking, I don't know how to do that. How do I do that? There's no one here. You paired up the animals, I'm alone. God, I don't know what you want from me. How am I fruitful? How am I supposed to go about this? That would have been a really awkward conversation between God and Adam. So I'm really happy that there was a them there. There was an Adam and there was an Eve, Genesis chapter 1. But Genesis chapter 2 is a flashback, right? We've heard about creation in general terms. Now we're going to flash back in Genesis 2 to something a little bit more detailed, something a little bit earlier. And that's why I said it wasn't in chronological order. In Genesis chapter 2, we find that God makes man. He places Adam in the Garden of Eden. God describes where the garden was, how it was watered, the rivers that were around it. And then, 
God speaks the very first words to humanity. Now, how do I know it was before the first quote I gave you, be fruitful and multiply? How do I know this next one is before that? Because remember, that was a to them, be fruitful and multiply. There was a them. But the next one we're going to read is to Adam alone. And it's not until three verses later that it says, and then God created Eve. So now we know that this next quotation we're going to read was to Adam alone before Eve was created. Therefore, chronologically, it is the first quotation to mankind. And that's important. It's super important to understand the order of God and why he did it this way. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to read verse 15 and 16. It appears Eve is not created yet. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man. Before it said he commanded them. Now it's not saying them, it's saying he commanded the man. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. There it is. Foundational statement number three. God's first words to mankind. Of all of the things that were bubbling on his heart for all eternity, you know how much was in God's heart that he was waiting to get out? My goodness. When I get home tonight from service, I have four children, as you know, but my girls, my girls have spent all day without me. And I promise you, the moment I walk into the door, I might not even get in the door. They might hear me coming down the hall and rattling my keys. These girls have got more stories to tell me, more things on their heart, more things that have been bubbling up all day. They do, they just, they do like this dump truck load on dad when he gets home. I love it. I just sit there, embrace it. They're on my lap. One's like, they're talking over each other. Who's got the better story, dad? You won't believe that. Hush, hush, hush. They cover each other's mouth. I got something better to say. And they're just coming at me because there's so much on their heart after being gone from me all day long. And then my sweet wife, Rebecca, she always jumps in and she's like, give dad a moment to breathe so that I can talk to him. And then she'll jump in and hug me and kiss me and say, how's your day and all these great things. My son, he's a quieter one. He's a little bit more gentle. He waits his turn. And he gets praised for waiting his turn, which really makes the girls mad that he gets praised for it all the time. But if my girls in one day are so full of stuff that they want to say and things they've been thinking about, Imagine God, the creator, the creator of words themselves, having lived for an eternity long before us, how much was on his heart to say? And so he has to think about it. All right. All right. Let's go through what I could say. What should I say? What's on my heart? What have I been waiting for all this time? I'm so full, but I'm going to overwhelm Adam. I got to narrow it down. God doesn't make mistakes, so he's not going through drafts and throwing them away. He just decides the right thing to say. And in all of eternity before that, what came out of his mouth was, you are free. 
That was his first words. You're free. Notice he doesn't start with, don't eat from this tree, don't eat from that tree, don't do bad things. He doesn't even start with, listen to me, I'm your creator, I'm your boss. He doesn't start with that angle either. What was most prominent on God's heart after ages and ages of waiting, he creates his child and he says to Adam, you are free. You're free to eat from any of the trees. And the eating of the tree is also important, but it's not as important as you are free. Because that's what God is trying to communicate to Adam. You're free. You're not a slave, Adam. I didn't create you to be a slave. You're free. I created you with free will. No, go do whatever it is you would like to do. Subdue the earth, name the animals, take dominion, have kids, travel the world. Whatever it is you're going to do, Adam, go do it. But remember, from this day forward, I've pronounced into universal truth, you are free. God needs you to understand that tonight. That you and I were created free. Satan is going to try to tell you otherwise. Satan is going to try to tempt you into thinking other things. Things like God's trying to hold something back from you. God is hiding something from you. You can be equal with God. No, you can't, because remember foundational principle number one, in the beginning was God. You weren't there, so you'll never be like God. But he's still going to try to sell the lies. And it's interesting that one of the things that Satan tries to sell us the most is that God enslaves us. Oh, those laws of God, they're so binding. They're so restrictive. You can't even do what you want. Yes, you can. You can do whatever you want. How do I know that? Because God said you're free. You have a free will. God did not create us as slaves. He created us free. Free to eat, free to think, free to relate, free to submit, free to not submit, free to sing, free to learn, free to ask. We are free. I think that's what's so important in this foundational statement. The first thing God could think of that he wanted to say about us was you're free. And I think that that phrase is just as important as the very last phrase Yeshua said before he left the earth. Again, that crucial moment. What's the last thing I should say to them? There's so many things. Oh my goodness, I've been living for all eternity. I have so much in my head. I want to get it out to the disciples. What do I say? I got to narrow it down. I'm going to overload the disciples. So what do I say? Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Teach them what I taught you. And he narrowed it down to something important of a commission that we go and do. But in the beginning, God alone was there. In the beginning, he wants us to be fruitful. It's why we were created. In the beginning, he wanted you to know that you're created free. Now, how does that tie into the holidays here? Because at the Feast of Trumpets, as connected to the creation, we learn that we are created free. 
I just taught you that. You're created free. It was a perfect world that God made, and we were put into it. And then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, we focus on the idea that now we have a fallen world. See, we were created free, but now we're in a fallen world. Sin has enslaved mankind, and freedom has been lost. But Sukkot, Sukkot is the festival of restoration. Sukkot is the time where there's a renewal of all things. The freedom is restored in Sukkot. Created free, lost the freedom because of sin, restored. Freedom is restored to mankind. That's the Sukkot story this year. That's why I'm harping on it. That's why I'm coming back to it. This is also why we we will return in the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. I created all things new, God says. And you'll be surprised if you go to read Revelation how much Revelation looks like the garden. Sukkot is the seventh festival of God's calendar. We said seven means completion, perfection, rest. Sukkot is also the prophetic holiday connected with the age to come. That's why we call the age to come the Sukkot age. We will dwell with Yeshua in the New Jerusalem. And when you read this Revelation passage, turn in your Bibles, Revelation 21, it's our last scripture tonight. Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. Look at how many things look like the garden again. There's no crying, there's no sin, there's no pain. It says in verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people, and he will tabernacle with them. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Look how much is restored. Yeshua is there again. There's no death again. There's no more sin, just like it was in the beginning. There's no more sin. There's no crying. There's no pain. There's no mistakes. If you go forward in this chapter, you're going to see some incredible things. The fruit trees in the New Jerusalem period... The fruit trees give their fruit every single month. Not like once a year or twice a year. They give fruit every single month, it says. Because I believe that's how God intended to feed the world. We messed it up, and when we sinned, we affected creation. Animals eating animals, animals trying to eat us, we're trying to eat them, mosquitoes. That's sin, mosquitoes. But even nature itself was impacted by sin. Trees stopped producing the same. But in the New Jerusalem, trees, fruit trees produce every month. 
to feed us. Did you notice in the revelation as you move forward, guess what makes a return appearance? The tree of life. I started with the tree of life, didn't I? And I told you its leaves were for the healing of the nations. Sukkot is a nation's festival. Then there's this thing called the river of life that's there as well. It's such a wonderful redemption story. Freedom is how we were created. You were created free. Freedom was lost when sin is introduced to the world. But God brought us to an age that is renewed again. Freedom is regained. Our key phrase of the night, God created us free. He was saddened by our enslavement to sin, but sacrificed himself that we might be free again. The three foundational phrases of the night. Worship team, come help me with this. In the beginning, God existed, describing our immediate relationship and submission to the Creator Father. Second phrase, be fruitful and multiply. We were given a grand and very important purpose. And third, the first statement to mankind chronologically, you are free. God's intention of how he wanted his people to live was to live free. Amen and amen. Amen.